This is the Sea to Sky podcast with Marcus, weaving through the issues in Sea to Sky country. Welcome to another edition of the Sea to Sky podcast. My name is Marcus. I'm sitting with Tracy Saxby, who's a marine biologist who uh, has been working all around how sounds. She's going to change my perspective, I believe, on, on a couple of topics that's happening in the, in the area. What's your background, Tracy? So I have the equivalent of a master's in marine science. And I own a company called Visual Science. And what we do is we take research and data, we make it simple, and we make it visual. Essentially, we're translating very technical science speak for the general public or for managers and politicians so that people can make informed decisions. So you're like the Neil deGrasse Tyson for marine biology. Kind of, sort of. <laughs> what he does for astrophysics, you do for marine biology. Yeah, and it's not just restricted <laughs> to marine biology. It's all kinds of science. I would say it's more environmental science. Um, a lot of uh, the work that I do, and I, I work with organizations and government and industry and universities all around the world, um, a lot of it is focused on climate change these days. Um, so that's a lot of the background that I, I bring to the table here. Well, you must have a lot of work cut out for you then. It's a really big challenge. It's actually the crisis of our times, and uh, it's... It's the reasons that I have become an activist. Um, I didn't intend to be in this position um, where I founded or co-founded My Sea to Sky. I'm now the, the part-time executive director of My Sea to Sky. This, this wasn't in the plan. Well, I mean, you got to do what you got to do, I think, to get, the, get the, the message out there. And sometimes it gets lost in the waters, let's say. So we, we're, we're talking about some major issues. You, you are part of the host, or you are a host, or the host of the uh, of the all candidates meeting at the House Sound Secondary. Yeah, so we co-hosted an all candidates uh, forum on the environment, uh, along with uh, Squamish Environment Society and Squamish Can. I believe it's the first time that there's been an all candidates forum solely focused on the environment, so that's pretty exciting. Um, and it was a, a really great evening, like every single candidate came out and we sold out. So there were more than 400 people in attendance, which is just amazing. And what did you try to get out of that? What kind? Of, what were you trying to communicate, or what were you expecting the candidates to say? Well, it was really tough this year because there are so many candidates, so we couldn't give each candidate a lot of time. So each candidate essentially had a minute where they could respond to three questions. One related to environmental health, one related to climate change, and one related to development. Um, so I think the benefit of this is... It's kind of the first introduction to a lot of these candidates for a lot of people. Uh, so to get a sense of who these people are, what their values are, what they stand for, what they're hoping to achieve, um, how they relate to environmental issues. It demonstrated their understanding of environmental issues or their lack of understanding of environmental issues. Um, it also demonstrated how, like, which of the candidates actually understand policy and how mm -hmm. it works, um, which of the candidates understand how council works and how they can actually affect change. And you're change. able to glean all that within the one-minute answers? There's a <laughs> lot that you can, yep. Watch, watch it. It's um, We've uploaded it to Facebook. So on the My Sea to Sky Facebook page, you can watch the entire All Candidates Forum, and I, I recommend that you do so and get informed about the candidates. And what you were hearing from the candidates is you, what you expected or you're a little bit more impressed, your overall feeling of where we need to be a little bit more educated in certain senses. So I've been trying to meet with as many candidates as I can in a, a very limited amount of time um, to brief them on wood fiber LNG, um, to share our concerns about that particular project because that's how my Sea to Sky began. Like we began because we were concerned about wood fiber LNG. Um, and over the last four and a half years, we've had hundreds of volunteers um, that have been volunteering for the organization and, and a group of those are research volunteers, like very experienced people with PhDs. Um, we've been working also with uh, LNG engineers that are saying this is the wrong place to put this project. So we've sort of been putting together all of this information from all of the research that we've done over four and a half years now. And I've been trying to share that with each of the candidates as, as much as I can. So let's dive into it then, LNG, because last year a couple of candidates ran on the no LNG ticket and they got elected. This year seems to be a different bit of a song. The song is, well, they're here now, so we might as well try and get as much money as we can out of them because we are seriously hurting for cash. We need the infrastructure. We need the amenities. And the 6 to $10 million that the province will assess, we can use really those funds. And, and also they'll help develop Daryl Bay so we can have more, more traffic on the water, maybe do some sea tourism in there. Um, it's one of those things where 
majority of the candidates that I've spoken to have said, yeah, we just need to basically get in there and get on the negotiating table and get what we need for Squamish. And so and my question is, so it's too late for anything else? Are we in that position where we have to be at the negotiating table? Uh, do we, is that where we are? What kind of leverage do we have? Okay, so there's there's a couple of things that I want to break out of that question. Yes. Wood fibre LNG is not a done deal. They still have not made their financial investment decision. They made an announcement uh, at the end of 2016 that they were making a financial investment decision, but it's not a real financial investment decision. They're a private company. They don't have any shareholders. They're not responsible to anybody else. So it wasn't a real financial investment decision. Um, it was made a couple of days before the BC Liberal Convention and it was made purely to try to re-elect Christy Clark. So we have evidence of that as well. Like Fortis BC's president in the recent update to their shareholders was saying that they're still waiting for wood fiber LNG to make a financial investment decision. Mm -hmm. So that w there's proof that this isn't actually true yet. Um, we also know that there are so many different hoops and regulatory permits that wood fiber still needs to receive before they can proceed. And they still haven't applied for many of these. We've is been there a keeping the reason why they're not applying or is it just it's a waiting game? You're going to have to ask them. Right. Um, they are also lobbying right now for the federal government to remove the tariffs that they have imposed yes, on import and steel. Yeah. And that decision is not going to be made until November. Um, they're also still waiting for Squamish Nation to finalize or approve the project. And that hasn't happened yet either. So there's all well, these pieces you know of the puzzle. So Squamish Nation did their own environmental assessment, which was separate to the provincial and federal assessment that was done. And through that process, they imposed 25 conditions. Um, and one of those conditions is that they need to come to agreement on a financial benefits agreement with wood fiber LNG. And our understanding is that that is still that still hasn't been finalized. So basically, the money the money talks. The, the money part is still what needs to be sort of rectified. Have they met those 25 conditions or no? No. Well, and, and I, I really can't speak for Squamish Nation. So um, I, I suggest that you, you reach out to somebody I'm, I'm and, saying, and, and what, find out more from them. What status are we at at the point of the negotiation table? Because uh, if there's a certain line where you've crossed, there's a point of no return. I'm just saying if, mm -hmm. there's that, if we've reached that point of no return is what I'm asking. I'm trying to establish that. I don't think it's a point of no return. No. So last year, um, Squamish Nation held their own election. And during that election, there was a slate of candidates called the New Nine. And they ran on a slate promising that they would stop wood fiber LNG. Mm -hmm. That was what they promised. Eight of those candidates out of the nine got elected. And there were also two candidates, existing candidates, that were re-elected that also opposed wood fiber LNG. So out of 16 band council members, there's 10 that were in opposition to LNG and now six that support it. Mm -hmm. I don't know where they currently feel about the project, but that's where it was at the end of last year. So what's the big problem then with LNG at this point? Apart from not meeting an environmental assessment, which already raises a flag. Also, they haven't decided to put the financial investment, as you said. You know, my, my partner, Alan, would argue that LNG has never had an accident, ever, as it's one of the safest things you can do. And so there's really shouldn't be a worry about it. From your perspective, obviously, since you're worried, of, uh, you have your environmental concerns, What what is the big no for LNG for you? It's true that LNG tankers have never had an accident, but it's not true that LNG facilities have never had an accident. There was actually an explosion at the LNG facility in Delta in Vancouver very recently. Um, so there are safety concerns and there's also safety concerns around the compressor stations and the pipelines. Just last week, there was a pipeline explosion down in the States um, that occurred seven days after the pipeline was put into operation. And this week, there was an article that was released through CBC saying that the National Energy Board is recognizing that the pipeline components, they're not good enough. They're actually problematic. They're going to cause accidents. And so they're going to be dealing with all of that. So the reality is that human error always exists. And instead of trying to allay everybody's concerns, I would rather see that wood fiber LNG is trying to address these concerns. With regards to LNG tankers, wood fiber LNG is putting house sound residents at risk. And I'm going to explain why. Yes, LNG tankers have a good safety record. But the reason they have that really good safety record is because there are really strong 
strict international guidelines that every facility around the world follows. Wood fibre LNG is ignoring those guidelines. Um, They're using older ships, if I understand. The older ships are part of a different part of the project. They have bought two decommissioned tankers, and that is what they're using to build the floating storage unit. Um, So they're going to be retrofitting those elsewhere and then bringing them in, attaching them to the shoreline, and then the LNG tankers will come in and out of of House Sound to access that. So they're Mm -hmm. using these decommissioned tankers as the floating storage unit, essentially. So they're separate that still sounds a little worrisome for me but okay it's quite worrisome actually Mm -hmm. because um wood fiber lng does not want to build the facility here what they want to do is build the facility overseas where it's cheaper they've got cheaper labor um but that's particularly concerning for us because how do we trust that they're doing a good job um there's there's not the same standards you don't have the the oversight that's required um essentially because the economy for lng has tanked Wood fiber LNG is nickel and diming everything. So if they're cutting corners and, and trying to save pennies, can we trust that they're going to be doing a good enough job um, that they're not going to put, be putting house sound residents at risk? Well, then could you possibly lobby the federal government to put, keep the tariffs in place then? Because they're asking to build everything in China, ship them over, and then alleviate the tariffs. If we tell the federal government, hey, keep the tariffs on because of our concerns, would they be receptive to that? I, we have actually lobbied the government or we've, we've sent letters to the government saying, hey, you know, like Wood Fibre LNG keeps on saying that they want to support Canadian jobs, but they're demonstrating through this process that they don't actually want to pay Canadians. They don't want to pay Canadian steelworkers to build this facility here. They're really flip-flopping on, you know, all of the promises that they're making, you know, that this is going to be fantastic for jobs, it's going to be fantastic for our economy. If they don't want to build the facility here, um, then I say, don't come here so when you lobby the government i guess you didn't get really a response to that we haven't received a response letter yet you've been pleading then to i guess all levels of government because it's pretty much been thrown down or put down our throats at least the previous government did with with uh, with christy clark and they said you know this is going to get done regardless if you'd like it or not uh, which is why there's all this has been moving through even regardless of what council does so on a governmental level like what can we do at the municipal level how can we tell the the provincial level, hey, what's happening? And how, how can we appeal to the federal government to say, listen, this is not a good idea? Mm-hmm. We have been sending letters to ministers at the federal level and then also the provincial level. But there is absolutely uh, work that council can do at a municipal level to engage with wood fibre LNG. There's three reasons that wood fibre LNG needs to be an election issue. The first one is municipal taxes. Wood fibre LNG in 2014, they came forward and they said, hey, we're wonderful. We're going to be paying $2 million in taxes. Um, we're such great guys. That's what the pulp mill used to pay. And yeah. I, my response was like, yeah, that's what the pulp mill paid 10 years ago. Property values have gone up exponentially since then. Mm-hmm. Your project is worth way more money. Um, you're not paying your fair share. You're trying to cheap out here. We effectively lobbied council at the time not to accept that offer of $2 million and, and they refused it. Mm-hmm. Um, so then in uh, just a couple of years ago, Jennifer Thuncher did an FOI to, on the provincial government and she discovered the provincial government was willing to step in to cap or to place a cap on municipal taxes. So if the District of Squamish didn't play nice, then Christy Clark's government was going to come yeah. in and say, that's it, that's all you get. We're, We're going to cap you this the taxes. Much and you're just going to be happy with that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's not necessarily the case now because there's been a change in government. Right. That was, that was leading up to it. So does Horgan and the NDPs have a different view? I can't really answer that, but mm. there has been a change in government. So <laughs> there is an opportunity for the District of Squamish to negotiate the taxes. So when the BC Assessment Authority came in and they said, I, I believe it was from 5 to $7 million, but you're saying 6 to 10 Yeah, it depends on, on how you look at it. The problem with the assessment is that we, they don't know how to assess. This is quite of a new building. It's quite a new concept. So when you go in there and you look at infrastructure and you look at different things, it's one of those, like, how would you assess that? Karen Elliott, one of the counselors, she basically said, like, I'm going to hire someone to go in and make those assessments, a private who is familiar with these, obviously, with these facilities to go in and do a proper assessment, because uh, obviously at a governmental level, doing something that's relatively new uh, industry is, is kind of hard to get a fair assessment. So I've heard numbers from six to 10. I've heard five to seven, just like you. So it, it could be anything. It's definitely not two or three. 
Regardless of, of how much it's going to be, our key concern at My City Sky is that wood fibre LNG pays their fair share. If we're going to be dealing with local air pollution, local noise pollution, and the environmental impacts to the fish, marine mammals, and seabirds, along with any other impacts to our community, then wood fibre LNG needs to be paying their fair share of municipal taxes. I don't get a break on my taxes. Do you get a break on your taxes? Why should they get a break on their taxes? Right. I mean, it was because they're, they're going to be paying a lot more taxes than you. And that, that's pretty much why they're looking at a bit of a break. It's either 7 million or 8 million. Let us keep 1 million, you get the 7 million or you get nothing. Right? But the only reason that they're, they're negotiating this is because the price of LNG is no longer economically viable. They are receiving so many subsidies and so many tax breaks from government. This is just another subsidy that they're trying to get. So we're really concerned that Wood Fibre LNG is trying to put forward a pro-LNG council that will give them a deal. And, and I don't think that that should happen. I think that everybody in Squamish should ask their candidates and like, listen, where do you stand on this? Um, we need to hold our candidates accountable and make sure that they negotiate the best deal for Squamish. And what, what does it look like then? Because if you're talking about you need money for, say, cleanup and, and, and pollution and damage, what kind of damage are you looking at? How extensive of damage are you possibly could this, this this facility do in terms of water, air, whatever? I'm, I'm thinking it's just natural gas and they stick it on a boat and they ship it off. And I, I'm very, I guess, obtuse on that because you're smiling like, you don't know. I'm going to totally blow your mind. I'm just <laughs> trying to figure out which story to tell. <laughs> okay, so um, when I first came to Squamish, I came here in 2001. I have watched How Sound come back to life. It has been phenomenal to see the herring return, um, thanks to a lot of amazing work by other environmental organizations, to see the, the porpoises and the seals and the orcas come back, to know that there was a humpback whale that was hanging out near wood fiber LNG all spring. It was there for months. Um, this is incredible to me, and it just speaks to how amazing our ecosystem is, that if we allow it to recover, it will recover. Um, so all of this is at three by wood fibre LNG. So when we were going through the environmental assessment, wood fibre LNG was initially proposing to use a seawater cooling system. And that was a problem and we raised a lot of awareness about this because the Department of Fisheries and Ocean they have guidelines that recommend that industrial marine water intake pipes need to be located at least two kilometers away from documented herring spawn areas. And that's because the eggs and larvae are particularly vulnerable and they can get sucked in. So, How does a cooling system work essentially, a sea cooling system? Is it just a... a, a um you, you place it under the water and it sucks in the air, the, the water just, and then sort of recycles the water for the temperature to cool it down? Like yeah, so if you think about LNG, what they're doing is they're taking natural gas and they're cooling it to negative 162 degrees Celsius. And to do that, it's like a giant fridge. So it generates a lot of heat and they need to find a way to cool that down. And what they were proposing to do to cool that down was to use the cool water from the ocean to cool down the system mm -hmm. so that they can continue so the operating. the water will come into the system and then go back into the like so but the way the water is cycled through it's cycled through but it goes back out and it's chlorinated right. and it goes back out and anything that gets sucked into the system dies um so that's why it's a particular concern for herring you know all these all these small little plankton and organisms that can't move out mm. of the, the suction. What we learned um, from John Buchanan, he's one of our, our local citizen scientists. John has been going out and doing herring surveys since 2011. He's been going along the shores of House Sound and looking where herring are. And he's taken amazing photographs of herring on kelp uh, that you can actually see wood fibre LNG in the background. So when wood fibre LNG first came forward, and this is their environmental assessment, they were saying, hey, there's no herring anywhere near wood fibre LNG. It's at least three and a half kilometers away. But what they were doing is they were cherry picking data. They were selectively using data to show that there's no herring near the site because they wanted to use seawater cooling. And that wasn't the case. John Buchanan had given them their data. They knew that there are herring spawning on the docks at Wood Fibre LNG. And if you look at the data that, that John has put together, the herring spawn specifically right near Wood Fibre LNG year after year after year after year. And it's just that these herring are getting better and better and better. So when we shared this information with the provincial government, 
and then we shared that information with Wood Fibre LNG, they chose to ignore it. Um, so the project was approved, which is why I keep on saying that the environmental assessment process is completely broken mm. because it relies on science that is provided by the proponent, in this case, Wood Fibre LNG, and that means that there's a bias. There's an inherent bias in that science. It can't be trusted um, because if Wood Fibre, for example, they hire a consultant to do a report, if they don't like that report, they just don't publish it. Or they go hire another consultant. Or they go and hire another consultant um, to change that report until it says what they want it to say, which is that there's going to be no negative impacts from the project. Mm -hmm. So this process is broken and that the environmental assessment process is also broken because it doesn't allow for input from citizen scientists, for example, that say, hey, we've got contrary data. It doesn't allow for that to be incorporated. Well, they would assume that you have bias as well. Yes, but then what they should do is actually send out um, somebody from the government to collect their own data and look at their own results. So if they're not actually doing independent research, then it, then it can't be trusted. Um, so this is something that we're advocating for right now um, through the provincial government is to remove the bias from the process. And send um, in some ind independent... Uh, they need to change it so that it's not the proponent that is responsible for hiring the scientists anymore. It is government and then they, they put together a list of, of consultants and, and look at their past work. Is it credible? Is it not credible? Is it peer-reviewed? Is it not peer-reviewed? I guess it comes down to cost of, of that too. So one of those things where the government should send their consultant to then maybe charge the proponent for it. It absolutely needs to be paid for by the proponent. Yeah. 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 So that's a big thing. So anyway, the project was approved and it was left to Squamish Nation to hold wood fiber LNG accountable. So through their separate environmental assessment process, they had those 25 conditions that we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. And one of those conditions was that they forced wood fiber to do more independent studies on different cooling techniques. And then Squamish Nation chose what cooling system they were going to use. And they told wood fiber LNG, you have to switch to air cooling. And that was because of their concern about the impact impacts to herring and house sound. That's right. Okay. So this was a success, right? This was this was something that, that My Cedar Sky and Concerned Citizens Bowen, John Buchanan, Anton Van Walraven, um, there were a bunch of volunteers that put all this research together and, and made this possible. But, but you're not done with the air cooling. I'm not done with this yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so when they switched to air cooling, this is now a different system that generates a lot of noise. And in early 2014, we had Kathy Heisey, who's scientist with Vancouver Aquarium, come and speak to My Cedar Sky about the impacts of underwater noise. So noise goes through the land and into the water, and, and that's a really big problem because every single living creature that lives underwater yeah. relies on, so on sound. Sonar, um, especially the porpoises and the whales. Yeah, like so they use sound to communicate, to navigate, to detect food, to avoid predators. Sound is incredibly important. So when you put a really big LNG facility, how is that going to affect our herring, our salmon, our whales? And, and we don't know. The studies were not done uh, to assess that. So we had some other scientists come out to speak with us from yeah, Russia. Yeah, about the, about the spawning and the salmon coming back and how that could disrupt their pathways, right? Yeah, that's exactly the story that I'm going to tell right now. Mm -hmm. These Russian scientists came and presented to us and they shared the story of what happened when LNG came to the bay where they live. So essentially they've been studying migration patterns of salmon and, and the salmon essentially hug the coastline and then they go into all of the different rivers all the way around the bay. Um, so if you imagine a C-shaped bay, there's, there's rivers all the way around there um, that they were accessing. So when an LNG facility came to their community, what they noticed is that the salmon don't go past the LNG facility. So they're no longer accessing all the rivers around the bay. They're only accessing the rivers that they can access before they hit the LNG facility. So they're not necessarily spawning where they were spawned before. So they're sort of changing the routes a little bit. They haven't changed their routes. They're just not going past the LNG facility. Oh, okay. So the scientists said that is most likely due to sound and due to light pollution. So this is a really big concern because essentially in house sound we don't have any baseline data on salmon migration we don't know where they come in and come out from um, and I have spoken with Edith Toe from Squamish River Watershed Society and she said well they haven't done the studies on this but they essentially know that the salmon come in and similar to what happened in in this Russia 
scenario, they hug the coastline. They, they kind of migrate along the coastline. They spend quite a bit of time in front of the wood fibre site because that's where they start to acclimate to um, being able to go upriver. Right, yeah, um, from, from seawater to freshwater. Yeah. yeah. So, and when the fry come out, it's the same thing. They spend quite a bit of time there to acclimate before they go out into the ocean. Mm-hmm. So our concern now is that this has not been adequately addressed. There have been no studies looking at this uh, to figure out like how is wood fibre LNG going to affect the salmon runs? How is wood fibre LNG and the noise from this air cooling system, how is that going to affect herring? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a really big concern of ours. So is that something that you brought to the Squamish Nation? Uh, we haven't yet. We're hoping to soon. So it's a part of the process then. then. So the province and then where, where does the federal government lie in all this? Is this one of those things where they're just waiting to see or they're just... Oh, okay, whatever. So we're also hoping to engage with the federal government. Um, but as you know, there has recently been a change in the minister. It's now um, Jonathan Wilkinson has been appointed the new Minister of Fisheries and Oceans. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to get a meeting with him so that we can share this information with him. Um, but one of the, the biggest problems is that because Harper gutted the Fisheries Act in, in 2012, right now uh, fisheries and oceans, they don't have any teeth. They don't really have any way to protect wild salmon or to protect wild salmon habitat. Well, I mean, if you go to the federal government and you convince them of, of, of the danger, I mean, then you can go back to forcing them to put in those tariffs, right? So they can build the facility in Canada to make sure those standards are there. Um, so the tariffs is one thing they want to avoid. So at least there's a lot of money that goes through those tariffs to help maybe with all the other issues when it comes to in terms of clean, clean up and climate, which I'm sure you're going to get into. So apart from air cooling and seawater cooling, there's really nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> there's no third option. Well, the third option is not to build a facility. Oh, well, okay. But if, you, we, if we're going to put the facility in to cool it down, because obviously it makes a lot of heat. Um, if seawater doesn't work and the air cooling doesn't work, then we're pretty much stuck with, yeah, this doesn't work. It does Well, we're just going to see a lot of environmental impacts in how sound. And, and I, I, we touched on, on that before, like the impacts. So you mentioned about the herring and the sound and the salmon roots. What about on the land or in the air in terms of air pollution and ground pollution? So there's quite a lot of air pollution from the facility itself. Um, and, and I'm going to talk a little bit about greenhouse gases here because climate is, is one of my biggest concerns. Uh, we Right now, we have a climate crisis that we need to deal with and we need to act urgently. So I'm going to share a little bit of information about that. So one of the myths that's been put out there by the provincial government is that LNG is clean. And that's not true. What they're doing is that they are looking looking at a very minute comparison between, okay, so if we burn natural gas and then we burn coal, natural gas burns cleaner. So that's true, that's true. But what they're doing is they're excluding the full life cycle emissions of all of the greenhouse gases that are emitted to create that final product. LNG is really not clean. So, and I'll take you through a few examples, Ray. So the Permanent Institute um, in their report There's a couple of arguments that exporting LNG from BC to Asia will help to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but that typically hinges on two assumptions. One, that the life cycle of greenhouse gas emissions of LNG are lower than those of coal, and two, that increasing the natural gas supply will result in decreasing coal use. So the Pembina Institute did this report, and they essentially debunked both of those assumptions, and their conclusion was that natural gas, and specifically LNG from British Columbia, it's not a climate solution. And it's inaccurate of the provincial government to say that. Is it because the, the amount of time it takes to process it and to ship it? Or is it mainly because of the, just to make the natural gas? It's just like burning coal. It's because the fugitive emissions are not included in the full life cycle analysis. Mm-hmm. Methane is one of the most potent greenhouse gases. It's right. 86 times more potent than carbon dioxide. And there's a lot of fugitive methane gas emissions in, in BC. And there was a report that was done by David Suzuki Foundation recently that, that showed that the industry is underreporting fugitive methane emissions. So this is a really big concern. And the methane is released during the process itself, or is that the final product that's the methane? It's released during fracking, and and it is also the final product. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's escaping and fugitive methane emissions. So David Hughes is a former federal government geoscientist, and he's an expert in unconventional energy. He has done a bunch of research looking at the full life cycle of liquefied natural gas and he's compared that to coal in Asia and so looking at that 
full cycle um, emissions. He says if you compare BC LNG that is burned in China to a state-of-the-art Chinese coal plant, BC LNG is 27% worse than burning coal over a 20-year time frame. So there is such thing as clean coal. <laughs> I'm taking a Trumpism there. I'm sorry. I had to throw that in there. <laughs> um, so one of the other myths out there is that LNG is a bridge, right? It's a bridge to renewables. It's a bridge to mm-hmm. that. That's also not true. LNG is actually in direct competition with renewables. So the more we invest in LNG, the less money we have to invest in renewables. This is a this is a big problem, and it's been acknowledged not only by industry. Um, there are several industry publications out there that recognise that. But LNG to sell in China, essentially, they're trying to create new markets. Right. And they're recognizing that one of their direct competitors is renewables and how quickly renewable energy comes online. So it's not a transition fuel. And it's it's a false statement to, to say that. So how would, how would a company like LNG or Fortis or somehow come up and say natural gas is awesome, let's ship it to, to, ship it to China because it's awesome, but yet coal burns are less pollutant than, say, the LNG. Where did, where did the market come from then? Do you understand where I'm coming with this question? They're like, creating a market. But how? But why? It's, um, a, it's essentially a gold rush mentality right now. Right. The industry knows that there's a limited amount of time that they're going to be able to sell fossil fuels. So they are trying to dig up everything as quickly as they can and burn it as quickly as they can. Because I know there's in, in Egypt, for example, in some place in the Middle East, taxis have natural gas cars. Um, and, and so I, is that the same thing in China? They have a lot of natural gas vehicles or are working on... Because if, if you're trying to sell me a new technology, that means I have to adopt technology to handle that new technology. So I'm already burning coal, and China is one of the leading producers of green technology. Why would I switch around my technology for natural gas? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, they, the they, they could just leap to renewables instead, and they're doing that. They're putting right. in more renewable energy, I think, than any other country on Earth. Yeah, so what's the play? I mean, how would, how would you convince me to go to natural gas is what I'm saying. So, and this is one of the things where there's a big flaw in the LNG industry's analysis of mm. like when LNG is going to be viable. So right now, they, they're working towards this magic number of 2023, you know, like LNG is going to be um, economically viable Again. But the report that they're basing that on excludes analysis of looking at renewable industries and, and how quickly those renewable energy industries are going to come online. So there's a major flaw there. So they're, even within the industry, it seems like that's a major oversight. So it sounds like they're fooling themselves a little bit or they're just like, we're so much invested in this, we have to try and do what we can. They're doing what they know. This is business as usual. So this this is where I'm trying to figure it out because this is where I get lost. It's It's... It's to me it's dumbfounding that someone would try and push a technology that doesn't really would work in, in comparison since we, you are selling it to a market that is moving to renewables already. So it's it sounds very shady to put, say the least is try and, and keep this going even though renewables is the future. Well, and it's reflected in the fact that wood fiber LNG hasn't been able to get those long-term contracts that they're looking for. And this is partly why they haven't made that financial investment decision. So apart from the environmental impact, the fact they can't sell the money, um, obviously this is why it's an election issue. So yeah, there's other reasons as well. So um, if, if we continue with the, the climate change concerns that we have, yeah. um, Wood fiber LNG, according to their own environmental assessment report, they're going to be creating about 142,000 tons of greenhouse gas emissions every single year. If you add on to that the Fortis BC compressor station, which is going to produce about 27,000 tons of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, I can't do math. Can you do math? No. It's a lot. Anyway, Squamish (laughs) creates about um, 88,000 tons of greenhouse gas emissions every year. Wood fiber LNG all by itself is going to create nearly double all of the greenhouse gas emissions of all of Squamish. That's a lot. It's 169,000 tons annually. I just did math. Look at me. Nice work. (laughs) I'm still dumbfounded, but nice work. (laughs) You were asking about other reasons that this should be a municipal election issue. Well, uh, obviously, you just drummed out a bunch of reasons why we we one, that the company seems uh, to, why they haven't put the financial money in there, why they have made their financial assessment, uh, why with the environmental assessment, they've been a little slow. Uh, they've been sort of changing around some of the processes so they can appease certain communities. It just seems like it's, you just made the case why it should be an election issue, especially when it comes in terms of damage to the house sound in terms of uh, a lot of things. So uh, I said, it's, 
there's a lot of proponents in there I don't think is, is well known. So uh, for it to become an election issue, then yes, it's just a question of stopping it or how to get them to fix mend their ways. Or I mean, how again, it comes back to as a municipality, where what can we do to sort of say, hey, you know what, you can't do this. So because if they come through with all the paperwork and the permit permitting, and the federal and the provincial governments it says we're a go. It's kind of hard at that point. We're rocking a hard place at that point, don't you think, or no? No, so there's still a lot that the municipal government can do. Um, so the municipal council, this, this current council, has sent a letter to the provincial government stating that we do not support wood fibre LNG as it stands. Um, and every council around... How Sound has sent similar letters in. So there's a, a real lack of support for the project. Um, it doesn't have the social license to go ahead. And, and we're not going to stop. Um, we're really determined here to mm -hmm. stop this project. So we're doing everything that we possibly can to stop wood fibre LNG, working very hard behind the scenes, um, sometimes on things that, that we can't really share because they're, they're a little bit sensitive. Mm -hmm. But th there's a lot that we're doing. There's a lot of letters that we're writing and other aspects that we're working on to raise awareness about the concerns about the project. So as far as the power that the, the next council will have, so negotiating the, the municipal taxes, that's a big one. Um, the other thing that's coming up is the negotiation about Darrell Bay. So Wood Fibre LNG is asking for exclusive use of Darrell Bay for four years so that they can bring in busloads of workers from Vancouver during the construction phase of the project. Um, the municipality, well, not municipality, but most, many of the candidates that I've talked to are totally opposed to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, Darrell Bay is public land. It's currently used by several other local businesses, including the Cedar Sky Gondola, which uses it for overflow parking, and the Shannon Falls Provincial Park. Mm -hmm. um, so there's also a competing proposal to make it a much more valuable public asset um, with additional parking, a park and a passenger ferry to downtown. Right. So why should the general public and these other businesses lose access to Darrell Bay for four years, which only benefits wood fibre LNG? And uh, one of the questions I have is, will it only be four years? Wood fibre LNG has continually overpromised and underdelivered. In 2015, they were promising that construction would be two years. Um, they've already delayed the start of the construction by several years. Uh, their original document suggested that construction would begin in 2015. Then it was 2016, 2017, right. 2018. Now they're saying it's going to be 2019. But they still haven't made that financial investment decision. They still don't have a lot of those permits in place. So when are they actually going to start construction? And then when they do start construction, will they be able to stick to that four-year time frame? Are there going to be time overruns? Are there going to be cost overruns? Every single LNG project in Australia has experienced these cost overruns runs and time overruns why would wood fiber lng be any different right. especially so, if they're getting their materials from overseas yeah and that there's going to be unexpected delays there's going to be things that happen you know mm -hmm. stuff happens so if they negotiate that sole access to daryl bay and the general public is excluded from using that site how long are they not going to be able to access that site right. that's a big concern because the boat launch downtown is shutting down so if we also lose public access to Darrell Bay, how are we going to access the ocean? I'm, I'm with you on that. With the candidates also, it's one of those things where having access to water is paramount, especially to some of the tourism and also because the parking, it's overflow parking and the fact that they want to get a ferry into downtown sort of alleviate that pressure into downtown, especially with the densification. There is going to be a lot of traffic. So to take a little ferry in and then walk around the waterfront and stuff is, is very useful. And I don't think you're going to get any resistance on that from constituents based on yes we're going to share Daryl Bay otherwise forget it but then it comes down to again uh, in a position where even though if LG doesn't go it's finding that hole in the taxes right uh, and, that, and that's what I think the big fear is is the fact that we do have so many amenities uh, to pay for and we're about the number abounded about is about 100 million dollars over many years to fix lots of things that they never really replaced that hole of wood fiber when they when they closed down that extra revenue. So we've been paying a little bit extra with the property taxes and we've been paying and business taxes and and of course with the growth the the business uh, the BC assessment on businesses their taxes are going up. So there's a lot of strain. So anywhere to alleviate that, I think is why people are are, are latching onto this LNG project, saying yes we can bring in this money. And they sort of overlook the 
you know, what, what you've presented here, they don't really see it. It's not really, I think it's, the blinders are on at this point. Let me just say that we're not anti-industry. So I, I'm going to pose a question back at you. Okay. What if wood fiber LNG doesn't exist? What's going to go to the side instead? I don't know. Well, what could go to the side instead? There's not, there's not, if you look at what kind of industry that can go there, uh, we wouldn't put another wood fiber plant in there because it was not that great. Um, you can't really put a tourist uh, hotel or industry research suggests something like that doesn't work. Something so, I mean, else will go there though. So mm. um, there's... So my city disguise has has constantly been framed as it's tourism versus tankers, and that is not what we're actually advocating well, for not, at all. No, 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 and and I just wanted a point of clarification here too, though. Okay. What we are actually advocating for is more sustainable and more diverse economy, um, where we do have all of the local jobs that we need, where we're not a bedroom community of Vancouver, um, when we have a community that is able to live and work where we want to live and work, you know, in the same community. One of the key concerns about wood fiber LNG is is that you can, and I'm going to give you an example here. So say there's a community that wants to attract big business to that community. Let's say they say, okay, we can have a high security prison here. It's going to be great. There's going to be jobs. There's going to be taxes. But what happens is that that community then becomes the prison town and no other businesses want to be here. So from the beginning, we have been asking for a full cost-benefit analysis to find out, okay, well, yeah, sure, there's going to be benefits of having wood fiber LNG. There's going to be taxes. There's going to be jobs. Not many jobs, um, just to be clear. Like in the construction phase, there's only 37 and a half jobs that wood fiber LNG is estimating will go to Squamish residents. That's out of 600 jobs. So most of those workers are going to be bussed up from Vancouver. Mm-hmm. So, and then in the, the actual operational phase, it'll be even less. It's not that many jobs. And, and then when you're talking taxes again, the question is, what are we risking? By having this project move forward, what are we going to lose? What other businesses or what other opportunities that might have come here mm-hmm. are not going to be interested anymore because now we're in LNG town? Um, are we putting all our eggs in the LNG basket? And that is a major concern. So we've been asking for a full cost-benefit analysis to be done to say, okay, yes, there could be some benefits, but what are the risks? Um, and that hasn't been done. Wood fiber LNG has refused to do that. Um, and and that's in itself speaks mountains um, because you start to look at other communities where they have these kind of industries and there's all sorts of health impacts to people that live in those communities. And there will be health impacts here from the air pollution mm-hmm. that they're going to be putting out from the flare stack that's going to be burning there um, and also from the compressor station that's going to be burning. There's also going to be the noise pollution. There's going to be the environmental degradation. How is the fact that we're now an LNG town going to affect the rest of Squamish's economy? Right now, it, it's pretty amazing to see how Squamish is evolving. Uh, for example, carbon engineering has moved to town. Mm-hmm. Did you know that they employ 40 people? Yep. That's amazing. They're not going out there shouting it from the treetops. They're doing, they're doing some amazing work. There's been a lot of coverage. Vice Media has covered it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've looked at what they've been doing. Uh, they've been doing some amazing work out there. Yeah, and that is progressive. We completely support that kind of industry. It's sustainable. Mm-hmm. It's progressive. It's moving towards the future. It's coming up with solutions to deal with this climate crisis that we're currently experiencing. That's incredible. I mean, Squamish also has the rec tech industry. We've got the film industries. We've <laughs> we've now got like a hub of breweries. Like, who knew that that was going to happen? Actually, one of those things that I take away is like when you look at the economic viability of a town, you look at their craft brewery sector. If they're virtuing and craft brewery, you know you're doing pretty good. <laughs> I, I, I was surprised to hear this. Like, well, we have three, so I think we're awesome. We've got more than that. <laughs> well, and the big way well, there's A Frame and then there's Backcountry, there's uh, House Sound. Then, then there's Gillespie's. Well, that, well, yeah, I'm talking about like craft brewery, like beer. But then, yes, we do have Gillespie's. Then so there's, there's a there's meat distillery. Yards, the North the, Yards. Yeah. Um, yeah there's there's, there's actually, things. I think, 11. There was a little um, flyer that I got given last time I went out to Gillespie's, and uh, I was just like, oh my gosh, I've got to go and, and oh, start yeah, the, checking the wine, all these out. The wine 
a bit and there's a few others yeah yeah, yeah and, and then there's craft coffee as well like there's there's a whole range of, of different businesses that are setting up and creating jobs in Squamish which is amazing so what we're advocating for is a more diversified economy because when you have a more diverse economy that doesn't just rely on one sector you're more resilient so you don't see the boom and bust that happens for example with the fossil fuel industry you don't get that you've got more diverse jobs and and the the community as a whole is more resilient um, to changes which are going to happen well technically LNG would be diversity because we have nothing like LNG in here but I see your point you, you could argue that it's diversity but then it also potentially threatens all these other more you, diverse you, you businesses make, you make like the town is stigma you stigmatize the town with the LNG on it yes I well I yeah. yeah like I have created my own job here I don't know if I want to live in a town that has an LNG facility. I don't want to see the deterioration of the air quality. Like one of the reasons I live here is because air quality is so amazing, except when there's like extreme wildfire smoke. People have already left town because of wood fiber LNG. It's just a reality because that's a threat to this community. Um, a lot of other people are just like, you know what, it's never going to happen. So they're just, they're forging ahead and they're creating all these other economic op opportunities instead, um, which is incredible. I mean, I'm so excited about uh, what's being proposed on the waterfront with UBC and the, the clean technology research that they're wanting to do. Um, so I would much rather see that kind of economic development than to put all our eggs into this one basket which is LNG yeah it all comes down to again it comes down to amenities and and the fact that we have a landfill issue and we have a water issue and so even though and it's one of those things where you're exchanging this potential disaster to fix some other potential disaster and, it, and, and you're right it makes it makes a, you make a good point where do we want it it's, it's basically you know trading one bad for another bad thing and it and might help us in the short term but in the long term not so much well and even in the short term is it really going to help us like i don't think that either of us can actually say because that economic cost benefit analysis hasn't been done so is that another thing you could lobby to the government and say listen if they don't do a cost analysis thing by this time we're pretty much done with this deal or that doesn't work i mean that'd be nice but i don't actually know whether that will influence uh, a decision either way and when it comes down to talking to the government, have they been receptive to what you've been saying or they're just like, okay, yeah, sure, whatever, okay, yeah, sure? Uh, with the change in government, with the new NDP government, there's a lot more receptiveness to, to the concerns that we're raising um, about LNG, um, about the climate impacts of LNG, about the environmental impacts of LNG, about the safety concerns that we have about LNG, and we haven't really even touched on those. We're doing the best we can to, uh, same as what we're doing with everybody, we're trying to educate the government um, about all of these issues. And so what, what, what can others do? What, what, to, when you motivate the people, what, can it be, what more can be done? You need to vote in the election. <laughs> okay. Are we voting for the candidate that says no to LNG? You just need to vote. That is one of the most important things that you can do. Um, you need to get out there. You need to find out who your candidates are, what their values are, what they stand for, um, how good they are at understanding how the process works so that you know whether or not they're going to be effective on council, um, how good they are at working with other people. Um, that's actually a really big, important thing that you need to look at. Mm -hmm. And you need to vote. Last election in, in 2014, I, I think the, the voter turnout was 47% plus something. That's pathetic. Well, that's actually about average for municipal elections. We can do so much better. Of course we can. We can always do. This is why I do this podcast, so people get out and get more information about what they want, and then they can go out and actually make an informed decision instead of going, I don't know anything, so I'm not going to vote. Yeah. We really need to do, like, this is kind of a critical moment in, for Squamish. Um, we're at a junction where we can decide what does the future of Squamish look like, and who you elect as your candidates is is definitely going to have a big impact on that sounds like you're campaigning right now i'm not <laughs> i'm just asking people to vote <laughs> i was just close to, to actually campaign myself actually they were to run it's just uh just life it would be too hard if i did so this is this is my best way of, of going about it getting involved and uh you're right we need to we need to vote but and, and not necessarily uh because I don't think you're going to hear a candidate say no to LNG at this point. I think, and, and that's troublesome after hearing all this information. Well, like I said, that that there are certain things that the municipal council can do. Um, 
council has already stated that they're opposed to the project. Um, but there are other things that they can do. So the third reason that wood fibre LNG needs to be a municipal election issue is because whoever is elected to the district of Squamish will influence who our representatives are in the Squamish Lillooet Regional District. So the Squamish Lillooet Regional District are going to be dealing with the Fortis BC pipeline and the compressor station that are that are currently proposed to be put right near Valleycliff. Um, and that's a really big concern because there are accidents with compressor stations and natural gas pipelines fairly regularly. So right now we have a lot of safety concerns about the compressor station and the pipeline um, and the proximity to two schools in Valleycliff. The fact that we only have one access road yeah. in and out of Valleycliff. So if there is a worst case scenario, say there's an explosion, say there's a leak, say it happens during the summer when we're experiencing extreme fire danger, how are we going to evacuate safely the entire neighborhood of Valleycliff when you only have one access road in and out. Yeah. How are we going to safely evacuate two schools where your children go to learn? Um, the, the safety aspects of this have not been adequately considered. Um, and, and right now we, we haven't even seen an emergency plan or an emergency response plan. Like what is Fortis BC planning to do? Who's actually in charge of that? Is it going to be volunteer firefighters that are going to be dealing with that? Uh, or is that actually out of their jurisdiction? Mm. We have not are seen. Are they equipped for it? Are they even equipped for it? Um, often what happens with these, these pipeline explosions is that they go up and that you just have to let them burn out mm. until the natural gas is all gone. So how do you control that? How do you stop an extreme wildfire from happening right in our backyard? Um, so these are some of the considerations that the squamish Lillooet Regional District are going to have to uh, take into account. So who we elect to Squamish Council will affect who is elected to the SLRD. There's quite a bit I've learned today um, that I'm... My, my view is a little bit more skewed than it was before. Um, there is a lot to take in that I have not realized, and I thank you for that. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid to ask you if there's anything else that we should be worried about. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about safety if you want, but if we want to wrap it up, we can wrap it up. I don't think about wrapping up. I'm talking about, like, I, I, I'm, I'm afraid to bring up other issues. It's been all about LNG. I'm afraid to bring up, like, Garibaldi and Squamish. I'm afraid to bring up a few other things now. I don't know if we want to go there yet. <laughs> that, that'll be for another time. <laughs> we can talk about Garibaldi at Squamish another time. Yeah, because that that's also becoming quite a bit of a quite a bit of an election issue. Yeah, no, that sounds that sounds great. Um, we are considering taking on Garibaldi at Squamish as a new campaign, but we we need to actually look at our capacity to do that. Well, so far, like I said, they like LNG, they said all the right things. So Well, yeah, okay, so here's a funny irony. Right. The exact same people that have been promoting LNG and that have been saying, hey, we need industry jobs because tourism jobs are bad. Those exact same people are now promoting Garibaldi at Squamish and all of those wonderful tourism jobs. Thank you very much, Tracy. Yeah, what's, what's the term? I'm, I'm woke now. I'm, I'm woke. <laughs> You're woke. I'm woke. <laughs> I think that's the term. I'm too old to say woke, I think. I think I'm too old to even say that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. This is the Sea to Sky podcast. If you have a comment or story ideas, please check out our website at seataskypodcast.com or on Facebook and Twitter at Sea to Sky podcast. Thank you for clicking us on. <laughs>